Hello and welcome to the Mr. Brown podcast, where I reflect on my journey as an early career teacher with a special focus on mental health. I am your host, James Brown. Good morning. Just a quick check in from me today. I want to talk about three things. First, a lesson, maybe my favourite lesson ever. Second, a funny story about a year seven student. And third, a character called Niggle. First, the lesson. So I'm a maths teacher and I have a top set year nine group. They're all incredibly competent mathematicians and very intuitive mathematicians as well. More intuitive than I am. I think mathematical intuition is almost conditioned out of you when you study the subject at university because you quickly learn that whatever the problem, you can usually rely on algebra. And mathematicians are inherently lazy, so they'd rather do that than rely on their intuitions, which may actually require some serious thought. So yes, in at least one respect, I'd say that many of my year nine students are better mathematicians than me. And they're all picking up the main content very quickly, just from what we cover in lessons and in recap starters. And so I thought that doing more of the same for homework would be pretty boring for them. So instead, I had this idea of getting them to read a book. And it's the book that made me want to study maths at university. It's called Fermat's Last Theorem by Simon Singh. I'll leave a link in the show notes. So a few weeks ago, I spoke to my head of department about the idea, who in turn spoke to the library, and they ended up splitting the cost of 32 copies of this book. And on Friday, yesterday, I handed these books out to the students, but not without a considerable build-up. So like I said, these students pick up the main content pretty quickly, almost too quickly, and I throw bonus questions up on the board. And yesterday, the bonus questions were contrived to lead them to start asking certain questions. Questions that would be answered ultimately by the book that I want them to read. And it worked really well. So for the first bonus question, I just put up Pythagoras' theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C squared, where C is the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle, and A and B are the other two sides. Every school child is familiar with Pythagoras' theorem. And I asked them to find whole number solutions for the equation. So whole numbers for A, B, and C that would satisfy that equation. And they quickly found several sets of solutions. The smallest of which being 3, 4, and 5. So 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 9 plus 16, which equals 25, which is 5 squared. So 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 5 squared. 3, 4, and 5 are a Pythagorean triple. So three whole numbers that satisfy Pythagoras' equation. 
and I told them that there are in fact infinitely many Pythagorean triples. And they were certainly interested by that. But then for the next bonus question, I simply increased the power by 1. So it was no longer a squared plus b squared equals c squared. It was now a cubed plus b cubed equals c cubed. So a fairly innocuous little change. And I asked them again, can you find any whole number solutions, a, b and c, that satisfy that equation? I let them think about it for a while, discuss it with one another. And of course, they couldn't find any whole number solutions. No non-trivial solutions anyway, because of course you could have a, b and c all equal zero, but that's a trivial solution. And in fact, that itself generated some interesting conversation about what makes something trivial or non-trivial. And I told them, in fact, that there are no whole number solutions for a cubed plus b cubed equals c cubed. Not only that, but there are no whole number solutions for any power greater than 2. And that's Fermat's last theorem. I didn't tell them that yet, but that's what I'd been dragging them towards, leading them towards, with these bonus questions. And I could see the cogs whirring in their heads. And it wasn't long before one of them asked, well, how do you know? How do you know that there are no solutions for any of those infinitely many equations? And I said, well, I'm glad you asked. And at which point I revealed this box of books, Fermat's Last Theorem. And for some of them, it looked like Christmas had come early. So I'd mentioned this a few times in previous lessons that I thought instead of doing more of the same in homeworks, we could instead read a book. So they kind of knew it was coming. But I handed out the books and there was about 10 minutes left of the lesson and one student asked if they could spend the final 10 minutes getting started with the book. And there were several other students around the room nodding in agreement. So it's exactly what I let them do. I let them read for the final 5 to 10 minutes. And they all sat there silently, mostly, reading this book. And it was just fantastic to see students wanting to read a book. I think I did a good job of building it up in such a way that they wanted to know the answer. And that, of course, is what the book is all about. The book tells the story, and it's a 400-year-long story, of mathematicians trying to prove Fermat's last theorem. So yeah, I think it was one of my favourite moments as a teacher so far. That said, this is a top set. They're all very competent, and most of them are very keen to do maths. Perhaps it's more rewarding when you're with a bottom set, and you get one of those students to even do the tiniest little bit of maths and feel a sense of accomplishment. Maybe that's even more rewarding. In fact, I'd, I'd probably say it is. But even so, that experience yesterday, seeing a whole class of 13 to 14 year olds being interested in reading a book about maths, wonderful. And I wanted to share it with you.
onto this funny interaction that I had with the Year 7 student. As well as maths, I also teach computer science. And I have a clear set of routines at the start of lessons. I like to think they're clear anyway. I like my students, my Year 7s in particular, to line up outside. And the only two students who are allowed to enter the classroom before me are the book monitors. So two students who have been assigned the responsibility of handing out books at the start of the lesson. All of the students need to line up and wait for me, and I'll let them in when I'm ready. Now, in my first computer science lesson, I assign the responsibility of being book monitor to two students. Let's call them Jack and Sarah. And they did a great job. In the following lesson, all of my students were lined up outside. It's a fairly narrow corridor. I had all my students lined up on one side and there was another class of students all lined up on the left, I think, waiting to go to an art lesson. And I could see Jack floating around in the corridor and I said, come on, Jack, what are you doing? You're, you're the book monitor. You're meant to be in before the rest of us, before me, handing out the books. Come on, let's go. Let's go, please. He was like, oh, sorry, sir. Sorry, sir. Yeah, OK, OK. And trotted into the classroom and, and started handing out the books with um, with Sarah, who was already there. And it's no mean feat for a year seven to hand out the books, especially at the beginning of the term, because they they don't necessarily know the names of all the students in the class, let alone where they all sit. So it's a tall order. So it takes them a while. So after several minutes, um, the rest of the class were in and sat down and waiting to go by this time. Jack finished handing out the, the last book and then came to me at the front and I said, what's going on, Jack? Go on, go sit down, get your five out. The five is just a pencil case, dictionary, calculator, reading book and planner. Go get your five out, Jack. You need to get ready. Come on, let's get started with the lesson, please. And he almost went to do it, but then stopped himself and turned back to me. And I was like, what is it? Come on, we need to get going. And he said, sir, um, can I go to my art lesson now? And I said, sorry. And he told me that he had art. He wasn't in my queue at all. His timetable had changed. He was meant to be in the queue on the other side of the corridor and was waiting for his art lesson. But bless his heart, when I told him to come and get going with handing out the books, he did exactly what I told him to and ended up being five or so minutes late for his art lesson, bless him. But you know what? I think that young man, he's so polite and conscientious. He'd probably come into my lesson each and every time to hand out the books before going to his art lesson if I asked him to. Wonderful student. Okay, the final thing I want to talk about is a character called Niggle. From a story written by J.R.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, being more famous for writing The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But he also wrote other short stories, and one of them was Leaf by Niggle. In the story, Niggle is a frustrated artist. He lives in a society that doesn't really value art, and certain chores and trivialities and jobs keep getting between him and his art, and in particular one big project that he's working on. 
it's a painting of a of a giant tree that he almost becomes obsessed with. But again, these jobs keep getting in the way and he can't seem to find the time to finish it, to finish this painting. And he also knows that he soon must embark upon a journey from which he will not return. And he'll have to leave his great artwork behind him and unfinished. He goes on the journey and he ends up in some kind of institution where each day he has to perform menial labour. And at this point in the story, there's a particular passage that I'd like to read to you. At any rate, poor Niggle got no pleasure out of life, not what he had been used to call pleasure. He was certainly not amused. But it could not be denied that he began to have a feeling of, well, satisfaction, bread rather than jam. He could take up a task the moment one bell rang and lay it aside promptly the moment the next one went, all tidy and ready to be continued at the right time. He got through quite a lot in a day now. He finished small things off neatly. He had no time of his own, except alone in his bed cell, and yet he was becoming master of his time. He began to know just what he could do with it. There was no sense of rush. He was quieter inside now, and at resting time, he could really rest. Now, the reason I wanted to read that to you is because that's kind of how I have felt since becoming a teacher. Not that becoming a teacher means becoming institutionalised, but even so, before I trained to become a teacher, I had plenty of time on my hands, but I think it was too much time, and rarely did I use it well. Now, I have less time, but what time I do have, I feel that I do use it well. And especially the part about taking up one task the moment one bell rang, and laying it aside promptly when the next bell rang. If that doesn't describe a school day, I don't know what does. And also the part about and also the part about how Niggle at resting time could now really rest. I feel the same way. I had much more time to rest before I trained to be a teacher. But I'd describe the rest as a little fragmented. Now I'm busier and have less time to rest, but when I rest, it's good rest. Relating this to mental health, I think that the difference between now and then, for both me and Niggle, was routine and structure and purpose. Without those things, you can feel a little lost. Too much freedom is very much a dangerous thing. You need something in your life that you have signed up to, if you will, that will limit the amount of choices you can make in a day. I've signed up to be a teacher, and that places certain constraints and limits on what I can and can't do with my time. And that's good. That gives me a greater sense of direction. Gives me fewer decisions to make. And certainly I still do make decisions, I'm still free. But I'm less overwhelmed. I know what I'm doing. And when I'm resting, I can really rest. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It took two to three hours to produce, which is about average, and I tried to produce 
two to three episodes a month. So that's around six and a half hours in total, say. If you think that work is worth at least the price of a coffee a month, so two to three pounds a month, then please consider becoming a patron. As always, there's a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word in person and on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at MrBrownPod or email MrBrownPod at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate and review in your directory of choice. Please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash MrBrownPod and helping me cover the cost of producing the podcast. Thank you and talk again soon.